Hey everyone, welcome to Living in This Queer Body, a podcast about barriers to embodiment and how our collective body stories can bring us back to ourselves. Today on the show, I have an interview with Mel Plout. Mel is an author and urban planner. Her first book, Hack, is a memoir of her experiences as a New York City taxi driver. Plout's writing has appeared in the New York Times, USA Today, HuffPost, Lenny Letter, Bust Magazine, and on NPR's All Things Considered. Born in New York City, Plout is currently based in Eatonton, Georgia, where she's writing a novel about queer gun clubs in rural America. We had a super interesting conversation, and I really look forward to hearing what you think and I encourage you to check out her writing after you listen to the podcast. And just as a reminder, you can find me at Living in This Queer Body on Instagram and livinginthisqueerbody.com, where you can listen to current and future episodes, donate to my Patreon, and find out more about working with me. So on to the show with Mel. I guess the the way I've been starting these interviews is by asking a little bit about how you came to understand having a body. And so, you know, early on in your life, was there anything that, any messaging that you got around what it meant to be in a body or to have a body? Huh. That's an, you know, it's hard for me. I have a very terrible memory. <laughs> so, so sometimes it's hard for me to trace back mm-hmm. what I, I have memories of sort of feelings, not necessarily yeah. of specifics. Yeah. Um, you know, I think I have like some of the typical, you know, kind of non-binary or trans experience of being like, but, but like, I want to play with the boys and I don't want to wear a, bathing suit top and, you know, stuff like that. Um, I, you know, I had boy toys. I had lots of like Star Wars figures that kind of dates me, you know, I was born in the mid seventies. So I had all sorts of Star Wars figures. And then when girls would come over to play from school, I would hide them. So there was a lot of shame around, you know, that. Uh, So that was there. I don't think that came from my parents but they didn't necessarily tell me I shouldn't hide that stuff either, right? Mm. And then, you know, there's an interesting, you know, I don't have a ton of recollection. I always knew that I wanted to either be a boy or be treated like a boy. I don't even know if there's, for me, much of a difference. But um, fast forward to, like, more recent times, and I was planning on getting top surgery and I had to tell my mother, you know, she's like a typical Jewish mother. And I had considered not telling her because I was so terrified and, Hmm. um, but we're close, right? I just didn't know if she would understand. And so we had lunch, she came to the city and we met in Manhattan and we had lunch and I kind of eased in and I said, well, I think I want to get a breast reduction but kind of all the way or something, you know, and she was like, 
oh, you know, I have a great guy who did my face, you know, (laughs) she doesn't know. And I'm like, all right, well, but I think I wanted to go all the way. And there are special doctors who do specifically this. And then I was sort of like, but I'm, but I'm not like fully transitioning to a boy, right? Like I'm non-binary. I don't really know what I am yet. I'm Mm. just, and she, and I said, but I'm not, I'm not becoming a boy. Don't worry. I don't know why that was important for me to do Mm. at that time, but it was. And she said, what, you mean like how you told everybody to call you Michael when you were three years old? Oh, I guess I did do that. I forgot about that. (laughs) And so, and she was very supportive. I mean, the end of that story, she was great about it. And, you know, she's like typical, well, not typical Jewish mother, but very sweet, loving Jewish mother who's like, I just want you to be happy, you know, and it was tearful. And But she remembered, right? Like, so what I don't remember, she remembered of like, I went around insisting that people call me Michael. And I was three. <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't know what three-year-olds are like now. But so to me, that was sort of this weird validation of like, oh, yeah. I mean, who knows what I am? But clearly, I knew better when I was three than I know when I'm yeah. 30. Yes. <laughs> then the confusion starts to settle in as you become aware and get older and everything happens to just take that away from you, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool that she not only was holding on to that, but told you about it, you know, that she let you know. Yeah. That she knew and kind of didn't know what to, maybe didn't know what to do with it, but, but saw that part of you in a way. Yeah. She's always known. And, and her, you know, she's evolved just as I have, mm. right? Like, probably when I was three, they had no clue what to do with that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they weren't terrible parents in that. I don't rem- recall being shut down on that, but, like, they didn't, they were not going to respond to that in the way that baby parents might now. But now she's heard about transgender people. My sister's a pediatrician in California and has transgender patients, mm. children, and, um, and her kids have friends who are transgender, you know, so she's heard more about it as personally, as well as from like the news and media. And so she has like a slightly better, a more up-to-date understanding than even I gave her credit for. Mm-hmm. And I think that allowed her to put my childhood in perspective for her. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. Yeah. So the big news, I guess, is at least for me, is that I want to hear everything about what it's like to have a new life in Georgia. Oh man. There's so much. Well, I have news. First of all, we moved to Georgia in July last year, 2018. And in June, we're moving away from Georgia oh. to the uh, cosmopolitan city of Lincoln, Nebraska. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> another move. Okay. Yeah, I know. Because um, Katie, my wife, got a tenure track offer there. And on the tenure track, which is what brought us to yeah. here, you go where the jobs are. It's not like any other job really um except maybe the military so our time in georgia is actually coming to an end oh yeah which is this is a nice opportunity to reflect upon your your time in georgia exactly so 
it's been a trip, you know, like when she first got the job offer here, um, it was, it was hard for us to digest a little bit because it's not like Atlanta, right? And, and I read recently, like that author, Tayari Jones, I was reading one of her novels and there was like a line in there and it was like, you know, when you leave Atlanta, you end up in Georgia, right? It's, <laughs> it's sort of like New York City versus upstate, right? It's, it's a different thing. And we are in Georgia, not Atlanta. <laughs> and we're in a region called Middle Georgia, and it's very rural. There's, it, there's a college town near us that she teaches in, but we don't even live in that. And um, I, to begin with, before we moved here, I mean, New Yorkers are provincial, just like every other American. <laughs> you know, it's like, we're afraid of the South, and some of those fears are justified, and some are not. Mm-hmm. And, um, even my mom, again, was like, I just want you to move somewhere where you're going to be accepted, you know, <laughs> like just nervous because she's a, she's a lifelong New Yorker. She's never lived anywhere else. So we got down here and what happened was um, it was like the heat of the summer. The midterm elections were really starting to cook at that time. And Georgia, I think a lot of people in the country became aware that there was a very heated race Mm -hmm. in Georgia that was pretty important, right, between the Democrat Stacey Abrams and the Republican Brian Kemp. And it surfaced a lot of issues around voter suppression and just, you know, basic election cheating. Mm -hmm. And it was very intense to drop into a rural part of the state that was very pro-Kemp, very pro-Trump as well, um, and be who we are, right? Like queer and gay married and non-binary, at least on my part. Katie, you know, identifies as cis and, you know, like lefty liberal Democrats um, And so coming here and the the place where we ended up getting housing is like, we were just like in a sea of Brian Kemp signs and, you know, trucks. So in Georgia, it's funny, you don't need uh, a front license plate on your car. Like it's not like New York where you have a plate on the front and the back. So what a lot of people like to do is put the Confederate flag as their front plate. And, And sometimes they disguise it as quote-unquote heritage, because the old Georgia state flag also had contained a Confederate flag, but that mm. was phased out like 10 or 15 years ago, I think. But they, they'll either, either have the Georgia state flag, the old Georgia state flag, or just the plain old Confederate flag. And that was shocking. I was warned about that, but it's just shocking. And then, um, and you know, like, I'm, you know, some fragile New Yorker who's never seen that. I've been so sheltered. So I realized how sheltered I had been my entire life in this wonderful, beautiful, amniotic blue bubble. (laughs) And here we were in like 102 degree humid heat and just everybody around us supporting somebody who was outspoken about wanting to take away gay rights and suppress votes and take away vote, you know, just do, do stuff that we fundamentally disagreed with. Yeah. And so we didn't know how we were going to manage to stay here. And it was weird, you know, like we, public life is very different here because you're always in your car and there's not mm-hmm. a lot of like 
space to interact with people outside of maybe retail environments and restaurants, right? It's not like New York where you're on the street or in the subway. Yeah. So we would go, like there's a Thai restaurant that's also sort of a sushi restaurant. It's one Thai restaurant in, you know, in the region. We would go there and, you know, the wait staff was always perfectly nice to us, but it was bizarre. We stopped going because we just were like, there's some weird vibe here of people just staring at us the entire time. Like baby boomer white people looking over and just, you know, I read it as them looking at me and trying to wonder what I was. Mm So I don't know. I, it start, I had more fear about just like being in public here. Yeah. And, you know, I was going to Lowe's all the time in the beginning to like set up our house. And uh, so I spent a lot of time in Lowe's. And it was just weird because I would get served there, which I was like, that's fine. But the second I open my mouth, they're going to be like, wait a minute. And is that going to result in some sort of extreme reaction right it never did just like staring and a sort of like quiet passive hostility and some of them are genuinely great great people of course you know I don't want to generalize but then there are people who that politeness is disguising something and you can never call it out because there's nothing explicit being said it's just there totally what Um, was it what's that like for you as a New Yorker I don't know. I feel like people in New York are much more upfront. You know, I've had way more arguments on the subway with people and people being assholes and people being bigoted in New York too. I've been called bad names in New York by people, but at least they're fucking saying it. (laughs) Totally. I don't know. I think it's better. Like as a New Yorker, you just sort of want to know where people stand. It's funny because before we moved here, people said, well, at least in the South, you know where people stand. And this was with respect to racism. Mm-hmm. And there's so much of that here. And, but it's, there's obviously so much in the North. And I think it's flipped, right? Like, so people are explicit about their racism here mm. because they can be. <laughs> like, I don't know. I guess that's just part of the culture. Whereas in New York, people are racist. And they do the, this, the same thing that I'm accusing Southerners of doing for queerness, mm. which is sort of pretending otherwise yeah. or disguising it. And in New York, if people like don't like queers or, you know, or um, transgender people or non-binary people, they're, they're pretty explicit about it. Like they're, there's not, they're going to just be like, oh, what you think you're fucking man or whatever. And here, my experience is the opposite. Mm. Where it sort of simmers underneath. There's a lot of staring, a lot of weird looks, some like actual hostility, but nothing that says exactly what it's about. Mm-hmm. So it's bizarre. And it, it, it sort of really makes you dizzy after a while. You're like, what is going on here? I'm, mm-hmm. just, I'm just trying to find the fucking like thing to repair my blinds with. You know, like, can you just help me? <laughs> So, yeah, so that's just bizarre. Um, People have asked me if I feared for my safety, and I think that's also just a more complicated question just because of being in a rural area. It's like I grew up in the suburbs, but then I lived in the city for like the past 20-plus years. So 
being in an apartment environment has always made me feel very safe, right? Because mm-hmm. there's a million people around. If, if somebody's actually trying to like break in while you're there, like you can call the police to come try and stop that. They'll, they're going to be a few minutes away. But here, I mean, if we called the if somebody was trying to break into our house while we were here, if we called the cops, it would take minimum of 20 minutes. <laughs> you know, like if somebody was coming to do us harm for any reason, mm. we'd be dead. Like we have a baseball bat. And so then that sort of led me to this journey of firearm ownership where I was like, well, I don't know. Everybody else has them down here and I kind of can see why. You know, like there's a genuine fear and this is like, uh, whether you're queer or not, whether you're different or not, there's a certain feeling of like, you got to take care of yourself here because that sort of state structure is much more distant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So how did it, how did it happen? That makes sense. I mean, I get it. It's really, and and for people who are listening, you know, we'll have a link to your article. I want to talk about, you know, how that came about, where you actually talk about your journey of, you know, becoming a gun owner. Um, And, but tell me a little bit about that. Well, I mean, the the real truth is that after the election, I was like, hmm, uh, this is getting a little scary. Like, what's going to happen? And I started to think about all the people on the right who are gun owners and all the people on the left who aren't. And I, you know, my, you know, my, I have a foundation of like just always thinking about the Holocaust (laughs) because my grandmother led that. And, you know, there were other family members who didn't make it out. And so I grew up sort of very cognizant of that type of persecution. And knowing that there were people who sort of said, no, 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 it's going to get better. You know, the politicians are going to help. These these things can't possibly get worse. So that's sort of just in me. And this became a very surprising sort of feeling of repetition. Yeah. Like, well, it'll get better and we'll elect somebody new or they can't let that happen. And all this crap has been normalized. That's an exact blueprint you know or based on the blueprint of nationalism it's all been done before we've seen this we kind of know where it ends up and we're seeing it happening but because we're watching it in real time we're becoming numb um in new york i started thinking about it the first week after the 2016 election got gay bashed on the subway by a trump supporter at 5 30 on a friday on the fucking l train you know, like this guy being a total asshole and then calling us dykes and then some wonderful person who had clearly studied like bystander intervention techniques very recently <laughs> stepped in and started talking to us about the weather and showing this man that we had other, you know, support on the yeah. train. Like, all that stuff it was beautiful. And we were like, oh, this horrible experience just turned into something kind of great. Yeah. You know, where we're hugging this guy goodbye as we're getting off, you know. Right. Like but I was like, maybe I should get a gun. And I actually looked into it. And it's very difficult to get a gun in New York, um, which is actually a matter of uh, like legal dispute right now. I think New York is being sued over that. It's very difficult. And it's also like a part of another like corruption, like NYPD corruption as well. I am not necessarily in disagreement with the restrictions on gun ownership in New York. I think if more people own guns in New York, it would be bad. 
So I was like, whatever, I let it go. Then this happened. We moved down here. And I was like, you know, this might be the time to do it. I look into the gun laws and it was like, yeah, no, you could just like, you could just kind of go and do it. Like I wanted to find a good buy, you know, I wanted to get a bargain. I didn't want to spend a lot of money. And, uh, so I did my research and did I you mean, get a group on or something like that. I, you know, I tried, <laughs> I did get a discount. I went to, well, so like the first thing was I didn't just go buy a gun because I was so terrified of them. But I was like, I saw, post on Facebook and it was some woman who was like I offer firearm safety training for women and I was like wow I don't really count as that but like I don't know maybe I should try this and so I click on her thing and see she's just like a total Trump supporter I was like yeah no that's not gonna work like I'm gonna get killed and so they're gonna be like oh we'll use use you as the target you know like she's not gonna help me so then I Google like queer gun or gay guns. And then I like, it opens up this whole other world of there's a national group called pink pistols that started, I think in 2000 and then became much more active after the pulse nightclub shooting. Mm. Um, And they have chapters around the country and including one in Atlanta, but it had been dormant. And then there was a group that I found called trigger warming, which it was similar. They don't have chapters everywhere, but they're in a couple of places, including Atlanta. Atlanta seems to be sort of a, and Georgia itself also seems to be like this hub of gun groups in some mm. way. Not not in all the of all the groups, but like all these sort of alternative groups. There's like a big gun culture in Georgia. And so like even I found a group called the Socialist Rifle Association, which is sort of like a reaction from the very far left to yeah. the... National Rifle Association, and they started in Atlanta as well. And mm. then there's like, there's controversy in all these groups, right? Everybody's always pissed off at everybody. And so there was like factions and splinters and all this stuff. There's drama everywhere you go. And including in the NRA, so in case anybody's worried, they're, they're also, there's infighting everywhere. It's yeah. great. So I found Trigger Warning and I was like, oh, you, they have meetups in Atlanta, which is like about 90 miles away. And so I said, oh, I want to go to the meetup. But in the meantime, because it it's only every month, um, somebody, I posted and somebody was like, oh, I live in Macon with my husband, a guy. He was like, I live in Macon with my husband. I'll come up to you. There's a range near you and I'll bring some guns and show you how to do it. And so this guy came up and, you know, he was very sweet, so slightly older gay man. And, you know, we met at this outdoor range and there was nobody there except for the range safety officer who was very interested in helping me learn. You know, I, hmm. the thing about gun culture you realize is even these like horrible people who have politics that are so opposed to you, they are very excited. About bring, guns. Yeah, and to bring new people yeah, into yeah. gun ownership and, you know, to teach it properly because it's obviously like safety training is critical um, and everybody really wants you to be safe with it and know how to do it and know what you're using it for. And, and mm. there's a lot of respect for it, even if you're coming to it from a different place. Politically. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, he showed me how to do, to shoot. And then I went to the meetup and I shot more guns cause everybody's sharing the meetup with trigger warning is also combined with the meetup with the socialist rifle association. So it was like oh, this. Okay funny combination of like trans people and queers 
and gay, just regular, like, you know, cis gay people. And then, um, and then he's like, you know, for the most part, like straight white sensitive dudes, you know, who are willing to <laughs> share their like weird Soviet <laughs> guns that they love. Oh my gosh. It's, it's all very sweet. So wild. Yeah. It's, it's very supportive. Mm-hmm. Um, so I shot a bunch and then I kind of was like thinking about what I wanted to get and went on over to grabagun.com because <laughs> uh, they had one of the better deals on the gun I wanted. And then what they do is they ship it to a local um, store that's licensed to sell firearms. Right? Yeah. They can't ship it to you directly. That's Nobody will ever do that no matter where you are. And so you get it to, at a store and then you go to the store and the store runs your background check. In Georgia, all you do is you go to the store and when they get your gun in and you pay them like a fee, like 20 bucks in this case, and you fill out your form and then they run the background check on like some ancient IBM. And, <laughs> and then in five minutes you're cleared. And I think it would be shorter if I had actually been a resident of Georgia for a long time, but he's like, ah, oh, computer's not going to like that. You're from, like, okay, here you go. And hands me the gun and I walked out. And it was actually literally like that process other than like the delivery time took less time than it did for me to vote in Georgia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like there are more requirements for voting. Right. Totally. I- wow. So it was pretty easy. <laughs> Luckily, I've never had to use it. I just go shoot targets and feeling very deeply satisfied. Like in the Virgo in me was like, oh, this is like a precision sport, you know, that also requires some weird degree of physicality, right? You have to mm. strengthen like, your hands and your arms and like hand eye coordination. And that became very deeply satisfying to me. So I go to the range near me, the outdoor range with like all the militia members and NRA heads, <laughs> and, uh, you know, people shooting to like teaching their kids how to shoot long guns so they can do deer hunting or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, is there uh, is there like a, any discussion? You said that people are really, you know, pretty welcoming of new gun owners and I, I get that whole kind of culture, but is is there, is it sort of just intuited what the what people's potential intentions are are people talking about like community or conversation about you know like what am I doing here at the gun range you know what I mean like why are you getting a gun like what are you interested in what's your deal you know in my experience no I think if you were going with like some long rifle you know maybe you're saying oh I'm you know, like it's deer hunting season, yeah, so I'm sure. fighting in my rifle. And there's a lot of that I see at the range. But it's not, you know, it's not like when I go to the range, like I'm not necessarily talking to other shooters unless, like it's different from the meetups where everybody's just like, here, try my gun or let me show you how to do this or let me give you some drills to do so you can get better. Like you're doing okay. You seem to know the basics. Try doing this rather mm-hmm. than just pointing for the center and shooting like here, try to do, you know, we're shooting to the left, to the right and the bottom or whatever, you know, like skills training, skills stuff. Yeah. Um, nobody at those meetups is necessarily saying why we're here, but I think there's an understanding just because of like the online presence of those groups. It's like, 
like there's a basic understanding that queer people and people of color should protect themselves, especially in a political environment where the like state resources for protection or, you know, like the police, the state sanctioned protection agencies are not necessarily going to help you. That's especially the case for people of color. It's more of a crapshoot for queer people. Like you just have to depend on like the political leanings of yeah. There's that, but then you go to like a regular range, and then like we're shooting, by the way, in Atlanta at a range that's like so hipster. It's like Central Perk or something. <laughs> it's like there should be like a pool table and a ping pong. It's like a startup environment or something. <laughs> like the the targets are in like cool frames, and there's art on the wall and couches and coffee and like a workspace in the back. It's what? like what lofted, and there's like beautiful young queer people working with like earpieces like secret service agents and like what? yeah wow. and then okay and, yeah and so then you go in like when well, we would have we would have our own whole section um but I've gone there alone and you're really not talking to I'm not talking too much to other shooters and I've sure. gone to other ranges like that where you're not like maybe if they were if they thought you were like them they would talk to you but they're not talking to me but like other than the people who work there. And then at the outdoor range, nobody's ever asked me anything. Like the range safety officer, he knows me um, at this point. And he's like, from his bumper stickers, I think he's a Vietnam veteran. (laughs) It looks like he's like a Mm -hmm. pro-lifer. And then that was, those are the stickers on his truck. But he's always like, no, how are you? What's going on? And then he watches me shoot because it's usually pretty quiet there. I mean, if he's not busy, he'll be like, you're, you're like pulling too soon or you're going down into the left. That means you're doing this. Like he'll give me just pointers on how to shoot better. That's kind of all he cares about is safety. So, and then like, I've seen like weird militia members pull up with like, somebody came with like a wagon full of guns, like long, you know, sort of long guns, (laughs) you know, And uh, I was like, whoa, can I take pictures of this? And they were like, yes, but they were totally hostile to me. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, they're like, we don't want to be your friend. Yeah. <laughs> so, wow. Whoa. Yeah. One old guy wearing the NRA hat and his bumper sticker said something like lifelong, lifetime platinum NRA member or something. And I was like, oh. What's this guy going to do? He's kind of near me in the lane. You know, he's like close to me. Our lanes were close together. And then like we were, you know, at these outdoor ranges, the range safety officer will, like when the range is quote unquote hot is when everybody's shooting. But because it's outdoor, you don't have like that automatic target thing where you can pull your target. Mm. So then when somebody needs to do that, the, the RSO will call the range cold. And every and there's rules for that. Like your gun has to be empty. It has to be pointed down range. There can be no, no, you know, uh, rounds in the chamber. Like everything, it's very strict. And then everybody has to step behind this line and not go near the lanes. Right? You can't be near your firearms at that time. And then you walk around into the grass. And so he and I were doing that. We were walking down together because it's the same pathway. And he was like, oh, you're doing really great. Like, you killed the bad guy, right? That was, like, how the story ended, right? Ah. Because he had looked at my target, which was, like, super close. His is, like, 100 feet down. Mine's, like, 20 feet away. And uh, 
you know, so he was so supportive. And, th and there's always that question. I'm like, does he think I'm a boy? <laughs> does he know what I am? Does he not care? You know, and we chatted and he was just like a very nice old man. Right. Right. Yeah. It's so, it's just, it's so interesting to me to think about how much more ease, the ease that you've experienced in some ways be, with all of these people. Like I'm thinking about being in Lowe's when you first moved and then this kind of ease of conversation that is happening in these places in part, I guess, because of a shared interest, right? I mean, there's some very like precise shared interest that you all have, which is kind of sport. It, it gets, I don't know if it's sport or what, you know, I mean, it's not, I'm not sure exactly, but. It, yeah, it's a sport. I like think, in that moment, it's a sport, you know, it's like the bad yeah. guy and the yeah. like, whatever, you know, how are you doing on this like skill that you're, I don't know. Yeah, I think I agree. Um, it's complicated though. And I spent a lot of time thinking about it. And I don't have it fully formed. So there's the whole idea of, there's a couple of pieces to this. So there's the whole idea of what's called the 2A community. The second amendment is the shorthand. They say 2A. So the 2A community, you know, is very nervous about having the Second Amendment be, you know, eroded and having their rights taken away. And there are different extremes to that. You know, some people think, oh, well, bump stocks, we don't really care about them as a thing, right? They're not totally necessary, but it's a slippery slope, right? You start outlawing this one piece and it makes way from other things that are more important to us. Um, there are other parts of it, like on the more, like there's a group called liberal gun owners and, you know, all these groups have different opinions about, yeah, I think we should have like uniform background checks. And maybe some people think waiting periods are a good idea. And some people think, you know, it, it, there's a variety of opinions, but all of those groups primarily really prioritize the second amendment and feel very strongly about it. And so when people like me are, like quote-unquote converted right from like a very sort of um blind anti-gun stance like i was super like oh my god we need to get rid of these you know i was like on the bandwagon and then we come over to like a more nuanced perspective perhaps and get a little bit more familiar with what we're actually talking about they get really excited but i've also been called something i had to look it up it was like in response to the essay, it was like, oh, just another FUD, F-U-D-D. And I was like, what is that? And it's basically like people who own like one gun and don't really care about 2A and are just using it for like, you know, duck hunting or whatever, you know. And I guess to a certain degree, I'm a FUD, but I also have, you know, thoughts about the Second Amendment, but I also have thoughts about the other amendments that... Right you know, sort of, I, I'm, I don't want that to be the only one. I want it to be like all of them protected. I really love my right to just exist in the world first and not have to resort to fucking violence. I don't know. I have a complicated feeling about it. Um, yeah. But I do think that that unifies a lot of the culture in a certain way. Yeah. And yeah. also makes people to be like, yeah, whatever. I don't care about your politics. You're here shooting a gun, which means you agree with me on this very yeah. 
critical right. piece. Yeah, I guess that's a, yeah, yeah. that's a way and, of putting it, yeah. And that's, that's what they care about. It's like, there are a lot of very single issue people. They're single issue, not that we, by choice, because they're like, this is actually the most important because if we lose this, then we lose everything else. Like that's, it's complicated though, you know? <laughs> it's, yeah. And it, it's, you know, what I will say about gun reform, because I do support it, obviously. And I think, I, I, I think that, you know, I, I'm not necessarily like second amendment above all costs and like unfettered access to guns for everyone all the time. And I don't know that anybody actually believes that either, even in the 2A community. They, they feel very strongly about gun safety and not allowing people who, with mental illnesses that are violent or like people with histories of violence, yeah. you know, stuff like that. But I guess I just feel like I learned more about this issue than I ever knew before. And I realized why it's so divisive or part of why it's so divisive is because when these guys hear Democrats talking about gun reform, they are like, you just don't know what you're talking about. And therefore I can't respect your position. And it's actually true. (laughs) Like it seems like people say things that, like reveal a lack of education about guns themselves and the issues. And I don't, I think that if Democrats, I think Democrats on the left need to learn how to talk about guns and gun reform in a very different way to not have their message be completely shut down. Yeah. You have actually had a much more embodied experience of the issues. And I think that's why your essay was so powerful to read because it's coming from and you know why your perspective is coming from a a much more embodied place where you've actually felt all of the kind of forces that bring someone to want to even engage in gun culture to begin with you know I mean and, and I actually I mean I I don't think very many people I'm thinking about just you know the times that you and I have crossed paths in the many years of living in New York and thinking about actually having this conversation the way we're having it, you know, it, it wouldn't have happened probably at all. I mean, it just couldn't have, right. You have to, you're like, you have to be where you are in order to. So I, it's, it's, you're, I think it's raising a really interesting dilemma. Definitely. I mean, yeah, I don't think I ever imagined that I would, be saying this stuff for sure. And also really like, you know, everybody talks about the bubble and, and then and you're like, yeah, we're in a bubble. We know we're in a bubble, but then you leave the bubble and you're like, whoa, was I in a bubble? And I miss the bubble. Make no mistake. I want to go right back in. I want to crawl back home. But, <laughs> but like, I also am looking around and I'm like, no, this is, this shit's real. Like this is really happening here. You know, like there are signs, you know, there's a lot of roadside signs in front of stores and churches, you know, like go Trump, build that wall, you know, like lots of people who I'm like, you're in middle Georgia. You run no risk of like these scary immigrants coming and like, there's nobody's coming here. Right. (laughs) Like you're fine. But like it, people really care about it. There's bumper stickers that are like, I'm not a liberal, go Trump, Trump Pence, you know, Trump 2020 is happening a lot around here now. And I hate it. And I 
like wish I could crawl back into my blue, like safe space. But it's also, there, there's something that scares me about not knowing about it. Yeah. I mean, you know, the New York Times does all this fucking annoying articles where they're trying to like represent the like Trumpy perspective or whatever, like what, why people like him. And I, I will never understand really why people like him outside of like racism and nationalism and fear. But it's also just like, it's been very educational in a certain way where I'm like, oh, no, no, he really might win again. These people, this is very, I mean, I'm in a very blood red county in a pretty purple state, but still that's just not, yeah, it's terrifying. And so there's a certain degree of like, maybe paranoia that comes along with that. Um, like paranoia in gun, gun culture is also a thing, right? Like there's preppers and there's, there's the people on the far right and the militia groups who think there's going to be some sort of race war that they have to fight or like, I don't know, like a, a ton of bullshit. Zombie apocalypse is basically like a racist metaphor for, you know, like whiteness being not primary or prim the primacy of whiteness being. So there's all that. But then on the other side, it's sort of like, well, if this keeps going, the way it's going and my rights are slowly stripped, right? Like, you know, the, the ban of trans people in the military seems okay. Like that's fucking horrible, but it's small. It doesn't affect me. Right. Like, here we go. Another little slippery slope, mm -hmm. you know, abortion bans, um, having, you know, in Georgia, like there's legislation that's been like stalled, but it's happening of like, you know, preventing gays from, or allowing adoption agencies to deny, to reject gay couples uh, mm -hmm. if it conflicts with their religious beliefs. Religious liberty laws, which are, you know, getting passed all over the place so that gay people can't do things. So then you start to think, wow, okay, maybe I do need to protect myself. You know, maybe something this is just going to get worse and worse and worse. And we should maybe become more armed. I mean, like, then you start to buy into that rhetoric on the right. very far left and like Antifa and like all these people who are like, you're stupid for sitting there. Like you're just a sitting duck. You're just waiting for all these people to come get you. I don't think that's necessarily really happening right now, but I got to say, I live in a place where it's not totally, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not totally unrealistic. It's not going to happen today. But I don't know, you know, like you start to see things get yeah. stripped away that worry a little bit, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, I have one nine millimeter handgun, which anybody in the gun, in the gun world is going to be like, that's not going to protect you. You need to get an AR-15. And the reason you need to get an AR-15 is because it's just much more effective. If somebody comes into your house, your nine millimeter handgun might do a little bit of damage, but if they're on meth, if they're huge, it's not going to stop them. Like guns are lethal, but they're not necessarily as lethal as we think they are. That's why right. people are obsessed with bigger guns, shotguns, AR-15s. That's self, that's true self-defense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, welcome to my rabbit hole. <laughs> wow. Totally. Yeah. I mean, do you actually feel, I don't know, I, I guess I'm wondering how, now that I know that you're going to probably be moving, but you're going to be moving to a place you don't know either, really. 
I yeah. mean, it's another very red state. We're, yeah. We're moving to a blue dot. You know, a friend of mine from Nebraska said, well, you're moving from Trump fanatics to Trump supporters. So you're like a little, like one or two rungs up that ladder. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, what that's like. Yeah. So alongside this whole like safety gun living in the South journey, you also, you know, one of the things that you have conveyed to me is that I guess I'm just trying to think about how you would like to talk about your body transition, evolution, you know, identity around your body, how that has been shifting or how you've been relating to your your body and your non-binary identity in in the South and over the past couple of years, um, maybe that's that it may be influenced by where you live, or it may just be kind of the evolution of how you've, you know, how you have been relating to yourself. Yeah, I think. So I've been on low dose testosterone for, I probably shouldn't know like three years, two years, something like that. (laughs) I I probably, I really should know, but I don't. Um, I guess I forgot to keep track. But um, so for a couple years, I've been on low dose, right? Which I think is becoming more common now. But there were the, you know, there were some like blogs and tumblers where people were doing that. So I had, you know, some access to some precedent to find out what that meant. Um, Because I didn't, necessarily feel comfortable just transitioning right like so completely and 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 that's complicated in itself it's like well maybe if I was younger I would have maybe if I grew up a little bit differently that would have been you know I would have been Michael you know and I I'm 43 but when I was 23 I was watching a lot of my friends transition it's not like I didn't know about it yeah. But I'm I'm usually very slow to come to things, you know. Like I have no tattoos because I couldn't commit to tattoos. You know, tattoos were everywhere when I was a you know freshman in college. I got a piercing to like, you know, ninety three, everybody's getting tattoos everywhere. And I was like, I don't know what I want to get. <laughs> so that's complicated, right? There's like questions of like a different me, a different upbringing, a different time, a different age. Yeah just like be a dude now and be super happy about that rather than sort of being like what am I I don't know like it's never fully being non-binary is like no no piece of cake yeah Uh, yeah I know I'm not a woman right and I just I don't know but so I I like most of the stuff that's happened with my body as a result of low dose tea it's it's been very slow I like that too I like slowly seeing and having the option to back off if I really mm. not having some quick drastic change right yeah. like you go on full dose tea like in three months you've got you like look very different you know pretty quickly so mm-hmm. so there's that but in New York it felt just a little bit easier to be that way right um because because you're ignored, which is great, <laughs> you know, like you're just invisible and nobody gives a fuck. Whereas here, there's like definitely the puzzled stare at the very least, whether it's hostile or not, doesn't matter. It's just always there. Like, what is that? What is that person? What, like, I don't know what to make of that 
person? Are they, they're not in the right bathroom, are they? And like, I never even know what bathroom to use. I'm just like, what do people, what do I think people think I am? Because I just want no trouble. You know, I don't, I'm not, you know, it's like a 24 hour Walmart, you know, and I'm like buying a toaster and I have to pee. And I just, I just don't want anybody to even like look at me. Oftentimes the women's room is cleaner. So sometimes I base it on that. But if there's a line, I use men's room, you know, like, I don't know. It's like I try different strategies. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think a body in private is very different from a body in public. And I think that's, that's where it, ha- and then where that public space is, is also uh, like determines like, not necessarily my core feelings about my body, but just like my, the the other feelings, like how I interact with the world, like feelings of like nervousness or even shame, which, you know, it's not like, I I don't know that you ever fully get past that fucking bullshit, you know, Mm -hmm. that internalized homophobia, transphobia, like it's just raised that way it's really hard to undo to a certain degree but turning it on yourself it's like other people you see and you're like oh god that person's so beautiful look at this you know like there's a a trans woman who's a professor here at Georgia College where Katie works and we've very recently become friends and she put it very well and she said you know being trans in the town is called Milledgeville (laughs) she's like being trans in Milledgeville is fine until it isn't right? Mm. And that kind of sums it up. It's like you go through your life and then there's, there's the moment where something happens. Yeah. Some violence, some form of like explicit violence where the, like, you know, the smiles or whatever, whatever's brewing under there kind of comes out potentially. Yeah. Mm. Or even just like the hostility or the misgendering or the, you know, for me, I like can't really be misgendered. I'm like, you can call me any pronoun because I feel like None of them are good for me. Yeah. None of them. I, I wish we didn't have pronouns. Mm-hmm. It was horrible when we were <laughs> when we were in Italy. We were spent six months in Italy. Katie got a like a very fancy, lovely fellowship, and we went to Italy, and it was amazing. I have really very few complaints about it, <laughs> other than like the Wi-Fi and the heat, uh, like the lack of heat in the winter. <laughs> but um, but the language is so much more gendered, right? Like mm. any like Italian and Spanish, and I was learning Italian. And it's so funny because I would talk about myself or Katie would talk about me, and we would both like because they knew we were native English speakers and not native Italian speakers, we would get corrected on my gender, right? Like gender's packed into the the verbs and like right, 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 right. and so we would get corrected in both directions from different people, depending on what they saw me as. <laughs> and in a way, it was just like kind of funny. And I was like, I guess I'm just going to use the male thing from now on because it's the basic one, right? It's like the standard verb and then you change it for female. And I was right. like, I'm going to just be the basic thing. <laughs> so <laughs> it's wow. just like, yeah, I don't even know. I don't, even know, where, I don't know where that tangent was going, but. You've had a you've had a lot of interesting adventures in the past couple of years. I guess you you've had a very like in some ways you've had a, an interesting adventurous life. Yeah, I mean, I can agree that it seems that way, and it's in many ways felt that way. You know, I like driving 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 the cab for all those years. Um, 
was definitely an adventure. Um, but it's funny because it's like the story of these things and the reality of them yeah. is so different, right? Like it sounds, it, you know, it's what I love about writing, right? You can make like prosaic, boring, or even awful shit sound like an adventure, or, yeah. or in retrospect, it seems like one. You're like, oh, I get to relive this in a slightly more adventurous way. But when I was like sitting behind the seat, like the wheel of a yellow taxi in New York in the middle of the night, having to pee and having some jerk in the back of the cab yelling at me and not getting tipped or something, it's yeah. like not feel like an adventure. Yeah, not a welcome adventure. Like, yeah, yeah. totally. I, and I think that that's in part why I wanted to talk to you because I think, and and in some ways, part of why I'm doing this podcast is that I think that what I'm invested in is kind of learning about the nuances of people's experiences that are really kind of, I mean, part of what I want to talk about on this podcast is sort of like what, what daily life is like. So I really appreciate you kind of talking about like the ins and outs of what actually life is like in in Georgia, where you are in rural Georgia, how it's, how it's played out for you. Because I think that it does sound wild to, you know, probably like a New York audience or whoever's listening that's not in your, in your shoes. But I think it also sounds, there are lots of people that are also kind of navigating really similar things in a day-to-day way. Yeah. All the, all of the Southern queers. Yeah. That are finding their own way somehow, you know. Um well and and for them it's like it's been a longer struggle, right? Like growing up as, in suburban New York City, you know, or like in the suburbs of New York City, uh, even though that was like oppressive in its own way in the 80s, you know, when there was a lot of homophobia in the media and et cetera, um, it's very different from growing up queer in the south i'm a very big fan of the queer appalachia instagram account yeah rural resistance hashtag and all that kind of stuff it's beautiful stuff because they've really turned it into like an empowerment thing right and and community and about community which i love and they've fought like a serious fight you know then they have daily battles and struggles and there's a lot of poverty here which exacerbates that and makes it even harder right and, you know, labor protection laws are pretty much non-existent, especially for queer people here. And then, so there's there's that. And then, like, for me, I'm also like, well, now I'm leaving. So I can kind of have this more reflective, like, open attitude towards it. But it's not lost on me that I'm going to the hometown of Brandon Tina, uh-huh. who is buried there under their dead name. And I was like, well, we're going to go fix that. <laughs> we're we're going to go, like, at least not not to face something, but put a little addendum or so, a little sign. <laughs> I like but, that. But it's like, I feel that I am benefiting from, like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm highly aware that I benefit from those who came before me. Um, so the queers who've grown up in the South and been doing it, even though it's not very enlightened where I am, there were, there were other people here before me who, who have been making, like paving the way, right? Like this woman, Joanna, who, um, you know, she's a tenured professor at Georgia college and she 
got them to change their preferred, to create a preferred name policy, right? Where I can have an email to my preferred name and not my legal name. And so she fought that fight. I didn't have to. Mm-hmm. Brandon Tina was murdered, but his murder created some changes in Lincoln, Nebraska and Nebraska as a whole, right? Like there's right. all these people that came before. And then there's the people who come after who are younger than us, who take a lot for granted, just as we have, and in some ways are very obnoxious about it, <laughs> just as we have been. <laughs> um, but I do feel an incredible sense of gratitude to um, the people who've struggled in these parts of the country. Yeah. So yeah. that I can have a somewhat decent life here now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really important. Well, I want to give some time for you to tell the listeners about what you're up to in terms of publishing and writing, whatever. Yeah. Um, So it's been, you know, it's been funny because I was like, I took a huge hiatus from creative writing because I got my master's degree in urban planning. um, And then I quit my job to, so that my wife can follow, you know, she got the PhD and you go where, you go where the tenure track takes you. (laughs) That's fine. Um, so I haven't really been able to work here because there's not much for urban planners to do in rural Georgia. So <laughs> I've gotten back to writing. So I wrote that essay for the Huffington Post and that became the blueprint for a novel that I'm working on now where I kind of wanted to follow the idea to a slightly more extreme conclusion than it happens and happened to me in reality. And I, it, it was sparked because I started joining all these online Facebook groups for like lefty and queer gun clubs. And I, you know, it was mostly like just reading the posts and every, every so often I would comment, you know, like if somebody's like, I want to buy my first handgun. And since I had just done all this research, I was like, well, this is, I'm very new to this. And this is the one that I ended up with and I really enjoy it. And so I got a message on Facebook from somebody who said, hey, uh, do you have any interest in, you know, I'm going to invite you to this uh, other online Facebook group that's like the local middle Georgia chapter of this national group, but sort of under the radar, that's a lot more lefty than you. And I was like, hmm, that sounds interesting. Mm -hmm. Is." And so I got this invite and, um, and the, I don't want to say the name of the group partly because I'm going to fuck it up, but I think they like to stay a little bit under the radar. But, mm-hmm. and I was like, what does this mean? It was like an acronym. And I was like, I don't understand what this stands for. And he was like, oh, it in German means like something like community education and defense or something like that. And so I Google it and I find almost nothing except for that it's based on some like armed a community defense group like of socialists or something from the 30s outside of Chicago or something like that. Huh. Uh-huh. And there's nothing about it existing in the present day. And then there's a national group. And so he threw me into that one too. You have to get invited and you have to get vouched for. And it's this whole thing. And I was like, whoa, there's like a whole other underground that I don't know about. That's not even just like, they're not like all like Antifa. They're like, they're from all over the place. It's, it's a whole different thing. And so that started me thinking, I was like, what if there's like actually like a very secret 
underground kind of queer militia resistance group that is operating in response to all these very outward right-wing militias. And there's a lot of them. And I've been doing a lot of research on those guys. You know, there's a group called the Three Percenters who are very like, you know, ostensibly about protecting gun rights, but they became very active or maybe they were invented in 2008 when Obama took office. And so, you know, there's a lot of, and I see a lot of their bumper stickers everywhere. Mm. And so I started pursuing the fiction of a, a queer person, much like myself, moving to rural Georgia and then slowly becoming involved in this underground, all but invisible, armed queer resistance scene that has, that's up to all sorts of like, you know, guerrilla justice tactics. Love so, it. Yeah. <laughs> that seems like the perfect way to manage your situation <laughs> from an emotional psychic perspective. That's amazing. I think yeah. that's really cool. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. that'll be exciting. So you're going, you're working on that. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the main thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you still have a book that people may have not read yet. I do. I mean, it's now 12 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's about to enter puberty, um, but it's called Hack, and it was a memoir about my time driving a yellow taxi in New York City. So mm-hmm. that's available yeah. on Amazon. <laughs> yeah, people should definitely check that out. Cool. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. and. Mm-hmm. I am excited for people to check out your writing and and just kind of follow what you're up to because it sounds like there's some cool things coming along. So thank you for being here. Thank you, Asher. This is yeah. great. Cool. <laughs>